Well, turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. This morning we'll be in verses 7 through 14. And read quietly as I read aloud. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are, the, who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have made us righteous, that we may live by faith. Father, as the word is preached this morning, I pray that you will enliven it by your spirit, convict us of sin, and drive us to your gospel, to the work of Christ, and pull us away from ourselves. Push these truths deep into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has come up a number of times this morning. Still true. Today is October 31st, Reformation Day. It is on that day in 1517 that Martin Luther famously nailed 95 theses on the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Now, Luther could not have known what would result exactly from his action. He cannot have known that this action would forever be seen as it is today as the catalyst that sparked Reformation that continues even 500 years later. But Luther certainly had no interest in splitting the church. What he did know was that he had 95 questions that needed to be answered. And all 95 of those questions blossomed from the biblical idea that the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith, of course, a quote from Habakkuk chapter 2, it's cited three times in the New Testament, uh, all within the argument that God declares his people to be righteous by faith. See, Luther lived in a tradition that was teaching that the righteous were living by what they did and not that those who did not do were not righteous. Let me say that again. Luther lived in a tradition that was teaching that the righteous were living by what they did and not by what someone else has done. They were seeking righteousness for themselves. Of course, that flies in the face of what Paul lays out in Galatians. He begins in chapters 1 and 2 by laying a clear foundation that the gospel is an objective reality. That is that it's given by God and it does not come from men. And then he goes so far as to pronounce a curse on anyone who would tamper with that objective reality. That's important because we are very quick to set up subjective 
religions for ourselves. When I say subjective, I mean exactly what Luther was dealing with. Religious systems that are built upon what we do or do not do. Human history is filled with those types of religions. Uh, The religions of quid pro quo, that I will do this for God and he will do this for me in response. But Christianity stands apart. It's the only religion that's built upon the inability of its adherents. It's built upon the wonderful imputation that is the added righteousness by faith and not by works. See, all other religions squish and are subjective in this way. They require hurdles to be jumped over, invisible barriers to be crossed. You have to do enough and then you have to hope that it was enough. You have to do more good than evil. You have to give the right amount of time, money, fill in the blank. But Paul won't allow you to confuse those religious systems with Christianity. He lays out the objective truth that the gospel is bought and paid for by God for the salvation of his people. And then he continues in these chapters three and four with what that means for your ongoing life. And it is an ongoing life, continuing to have faith in the gospel that first saved you in the one that God accomplished. See, Paul wants the churches in Galatia here to grab onto something tangible, something objective, something that is not squishy and subjective like the world tends to be, like our false religions tend to be, but something sturdy, something solid that we can rest on. He writes in Galatians 3, 7, an instruction to know. Know then that those of faith are the sons of Abraham. See, Paul is referring back to the Old Testament patriarch Abraham. He wants the churches in Galatia to grab onto the sturdy fact to know that God has always justified. That is, he's known his people by faith and not by their works. By what he has done and not by what they do. He continues. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul wants the church to know, and that includes you today, to know that your faith is built upon something sturdy, something objective. It's not A hurdle that moves, it's not squishy, but it's built upon the objective gospel. And when we live by that, we live by faith. There are tangible realities that we confess and that there are no conditions on true faith. Now that's a sturdy faith. And that's what Paul wants us to have. Unfortunately and conversely, we do tend to live in subjectivity. When we try to live by something other than faith, when we make conditions that have to be followed that we can squeeze through. And that's not just subjectivity. It's not just squishy. It's not faith at all, is what Paul says. And in the text that follows, Paul takes us on a journey. He shows us the difference between a sturdy faith and something subjective Something conditional, something that's a little bit more squishy and hard to apprehend. 
and sturdy faith, the kind of faith that the righteous live in, that kind of faith that Luther was looking for, is marked by certain realities. If you have a bulletin, you'll find an outline on the backside. Follow along as we move through the text. Paul indicates that we're living by faith when we're marked by three objective truths. We show that we're living by faith, number one, when we live like the law is unchanging. When we live like the law is unchanging. As we continue in Galatians 3 and verses 10 to 12, notice what Paul says of the one who is not living by faith. He writes, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by faith or shall live by them. See, Paul shows us that those who try to live by the law are cursed by that law. The law here refers to all that God has commanded in Scripture. Paul says that you cannot expect to get anything out of relying on the law for your salvation except a curse. That's all you can get. Scripture reveals that we are broken, that we're unable to keep the law, and so we are cursed by it. Nonetheless, those that live by the law try to please God through that law. And in subverting to that, they must do all that God requires in order to satisfy God. But verse 11 shows us that they all fail. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one. Paul says that no one is justified by God by the law. It cannot be done. In 2009, a New York woman won the lottery prize. Though she'd never played the lottery before, she decided to purchase a ticket when she needed some change. The store required her to buy something in order to get that change, and the cheapest thing was a lottery ticket. So she bought the ticket, and the ticket ended up winning her $5 million. What are the odds of that? You're right. It turns out the odds of... Getting a winning lottery ticket are worse than getting attacked by a shark. That's the next one. Or getting struck by lightning. Now, you're a practical people. What would you say the odds need to be in order for you to justify buying a lottery ticket? You say one in a hundred? Is that good enough odds? One in 50? Do you have a copy of this? (laughs) What's the next line? One in 50. One in two. Those would be good odds. What if the odds were zero? Totally stacked against you. My guess is that you probably would not play at that level. Yet Paul says that that's exactly the way we treat the law. We buy a ticket and we play the law and we act as if we can keep it. But no one is justified before God by the law. It's never happened. The odds are zero. But unlike the lottery, there is infinitely more at stake. Eternity is on the line, 
and your money will not follow you into eternity. The stakes couldn't be higher and the odds could not be lower. We ought to know better, but we keep trying and to keep trying to find life in the law. But life is only given by faith, says Paul. See, a life lived by faith is one that knows that the law is unchanging. But we trade that sturdy life for something squishy, something that tries to change the law so that we can justify ourselves before God, before others. We reframe it to try to make something that we can jump through. Well, how do we do that, you might ask? How do I do that? Well, we can see that sort of action in our life when we blame others for our problems. We act like a victim instead of looking at ourselves. That's a product of a squishy life that treats the law as if it's conditional and changing. Sometimes we see that when we gossip. It's to subtly put others down in order to elevate ourselves. We're creating a law, a hurdle that we can jump through that shows that I'm just a little bit better than that person. So I gossip about them. Unfortunately, the law is against God and not others. We won't be measured against what others have done. He's the standard by which we'll be measured. And he does not change. Therefore, the law does not change. That's why everyone who abides by the law and does not do them is cursed. Sometimes we see ourselves shaping the law by trying to fix others. I need someone to act the way that I want them to. That's me reshaping the law in my own image. Sometimes we alter the law when we try to hide from it. I retreat and act like I'm okay. I make a a smaller law that won't reveal my weakness. I leave the church. I don't really allow people to know me because then I'd be seen as a fraud. That's changing the law. In all those things, we're subjecting ourselves to a squishy gospel. One in which we think that we can be saved by the law. But none could follow the law. That's the whole point of Paul's comparison to Abraham here. Abraham is described as a man who is as good as dead when God came to him in Scripture. Think about that. Abraham, the man who is as good as dead. What can Abraham possibly do to bring himself to God? That's the point. He had no way to earn what God was offering him. Paul knows this, and he wants you to consider yourself the same way. You're just like Abraham, who cannot accomplish the law any more than you can. See, in conditioning the law, we prove that we are really attempting to live like the law. We're like the Pharisee who thanks God that he's not like other men. And in those things, we're not living by faith. Paul reminds us the righteous shall live by faith. See, we show that we are living by faith when we live like the law is unchanging. Because we trust that God gave the law, but not to justify ourselves in the law, but so that we might break on its unchanging reality and turn to something else. See, the mirror is given to break us and to reveal our sin. And we dare not compromise that because it reveals our need for something greater. 
See, we show that we're living by faith, one, when we live like the law is unchanging, but two, when we live like the cross is unfading. When we live like the cross is unfading. Moving to verse 13, Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. See, we have to believe that the law is unchanging and that we are held accountable to it in order to accept the gospel. The truth is that there's no good news in the gospel if there's no bad news that were broken to the law. And the good news comes in verse 13. Christ became the curse of the law for us. That's what we refer to as the, the great exchange. Though we were cursed by the law, Christ became cursed for us. Jesus took that curse upon himself. And Jesus was owed no curse. He lived a perfect life. He deserved perfect righteousness. But he takes that righteousness, that ability to obey the God, to obey God, what he has accomplished, and he gives that to his people. He trades their curse for his crown. He became the curse that we earned because of the law. That's what's meant in 11b, that the righteous shall live by faith. See, Luther struggled with this verse because his tradition taught that those who took the sacraments were made righteous by them. But this verse suggests something entirely different, that that it is the righteousness of another that is given or declared to be so by God for his people by faith. That's why Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Excuse me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because of Jesus, you live. Paul is saying that all of the promises are true in Jesus. Everything from the fall through eternity is filled, fulfilled in this redemption. It has made the people of God righteous and it has vindicated the perfection of God by claiming an unrighteous people like us for himself. See, the curse being placed on Jesus balances the cosmic scales of righteousness. God cannot overlook failure to obey the law. His perfection is on the line. If God overlooks our failure, our curse that we're owed, God ceases to be perfect and righteous. Someone must receive what is due, namely death. And Paul says that Jesus took it for his people so that they might live. And they live not by law, but by faith. See, the cross glories brightly throughout eternity, standing as a proof to God that his people are his own. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the beating heart of the gospel. That Jesus took on your sin and you take on his righteousness. By faith, you receive that. But if the law is unchanging, then the cross must be unfading. See, the truth is it doesn't fade to God. 
But Paul is reminding Galatia here, and you and me, that the cross fades quickly in our own hearts. Look at Luther again. Martin Luther knew the work of the cross. He knew the work of Jesus. He ate and drank of it. But before he knew what it meant to be righteous in Christ, the cross was quick to fade in his heart. He was quick to turn back to the law. He writes, I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayer, reading, and other work. See, Luther, when he sinned, would go so far as to punish his own body. Sometimes he would go outside in the cold with nothing on until the pain was too great to bear. It was his way of trying to make himself right with God. Or so he thought. But it wasn't enough. So Luther went on a pilgrimage from Germany to Rome. There he sought absolution for his sin and guilt through the means given by the Catholic Church. But still it did not last. Luther commented that he went to Rome with onions and he came back with garlic. Nothing he could do would satisfy his conscience. He still was living by the law. So Luther turned to confession when he returned to Wittenberg. He would spend up to six hours a day in confession. He would search and he would scrape the bottom of the barrel of his life for some sin to confess that he might feel free until finally the priest had to kick him out and say, come back when you have something to confess. See, Luther was not living by faith. He was living by the law and it was exhausting. He lived by an unbiblical system by which he had to do something to make the cross effectual again. But it quickly faded when he found another sin or when time went by. Can you relate to that? Do you have to do something in order to make the cross have meaning again in your life? See, that's a squishy faith. That's not a sturdy one. Paul tells us that the cross is sturdy. Standing through eternity. Well, how do we do that, you might ask? How do I show that I'm falling for that trap in my life? Well, sometimes we do it when we treat the cross as if it's just for the beginning of our salvation alone. As if it's for revival preaching. Maybe it was just a decision that I needed to make once and now I move on from there. But I wonder how that might work if you applied the same principle to your own marriage. I made a vow to my wife. I said, till death do we part. And I turned around and lived as if we weren't married. How would that work out for you? The gospel is not a one and done decision. Likewise, Paul is proving that there's no such thing as a Christian who made a decision once and then does nothing with it. Sometimes we act like the cross is fading when we pretend like we have it all together now. We suggest that our own holiness is now adequate to come to God. I don't need the cross any longer. And we suggest that Christ's holiness in that is not really all that substantial. See, I take the great exchange and I re-exchange it for my own righteousness after the fact. Sometimes we display a squishy handling of the cross 
by not breaking by our need for it. See, the reality of living by faith is that it would promote a constant repentance and confession of sin in our life. Not because God requires us to be broken and ruined all the time, but because we see that our holiness is inadequate and I must turn back to the cross. That it must be the thing that saves me. See, to move on from the gospel is to act as if the cross was never necessary in the first place. Sometimes we display a squishy faith when we act as if we cannot be forgiven by the cross. We say, my sin is too great. You don't know what I've done. If that is you this morning, then you know the damage that sin can do and the brokenness that it brings. And you're right to acknowledge the weight and pain of sin. But we cannot doubt God's forgiveness in it. When we do that, we put our own righteousness ahead of God's. We say that I'm the authority, not God. Church, what God declares to be true is true. Let go of your sin and trust in God. It's very telling that this message comes from Paul. Paul, of course, the greatest missionary the church has ever known, but first, the greatest persecutor of the church the world has ever known. Paul was responsible for the murder of many Christians in the early church, yet God gave him the greatest missionary ministry to preach the gospel in the history of the church. Think of what God would do with you if you trusted him at his word. If you lived by faith that he's really taken your sin. If the cross did not fade from your memory, but you kept it at the forefront and placed your faith in it daily. Live by faith, by living in repentance and God's forgiveness. We show that we're living in faith when we live like the cross is unfading. But finally, number three, we we show that we're living by faith when we live like the Spirit is unmoving. We show that we're living by faith when we live like the Spirit is unmoving. Paul concludes this thought in verse 14. He writes, So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, it's through Christ that Abraham's promise is fulfilled. But it comes so that we might receive the spirit through faith. So that we might receive the spirit. That's an interesting idea that I think we neglect too often. That the Spirit is the essential outcome of the work of Christ. It's the culmination of his work. Knowing that the law cannot save, trusting Christ to meet the requirements that were based on that law. And when we do that, the Spirit comes in. Why? Well, you could answer that it was long prophesied. That this would be the case. Joel writes, and it shall come to pass afterward, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But what's the point of the spirit? Why do we need the spirit? Well, we see the spirit throughout the Bible. We see him in the Old Testament as the third person of the Trinity. The historical role of the spirit is that of a binder of the work of God to the people of God. 
He's the binder of the work of God to his creation. He hovers over the surface of the deep in creation, binding heaven and earth. And he is the breath that Adam is given in order to give him life. He's seen as a guide for God's people. He leads God's people in the wilderness, binding the will of God to the view of God's people. His role is as a pillar that reminds them of the presence of God and to lead them in the wilderness. He's the binder between heaven and earth. But most importantly, he's the present reality to the covenant with God. That the promises of God are true. It is the spirit who descends on Sinai when Moses receives the law. And it's the spirit that descends on the temple and is in it. That displays the presence of God before the people. And it is the spirit who reveals himself to Moses to reaffirm the covenant. That the promises are still true even after the sin of idolatry goes throughout the camp in the wilderness. And it's the same spirit whom we receive by the work of Jesus that binds us relationally with God. The same spirit that connects us eternally and forever with God. The spirit is your connection to God. All of this is true of the spirit in our lives. But I believe Paul wants us to understand the confidence that we ought to put in the promise of God because the spirit is inside of us. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, Or do you not know that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? A lot of times we see that verse as a lot of law, that I better protect my body because it's the temple of the Spirit. But think about what Paul is implying. The Spirit dwells inside of you. The Spirit has come to be with you again. Christ has made that possible. That he's no longer out there, the pillar in the wilderness. He's no longer in the temple. He's in you because of the work of Christ. Be blown away by that. The Spirit is objectively within you. Unmoving because of the work of Christ. The presence of God indwells you, uniting you to God forever. See, the same power that created the world has recreated you into the image of God. Jesus is recorded in John. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Just as the Spirit filled the lungs of Adam in creation, so Jesus is recreating his people in his image by breathing into them the Spirit of God. Church, this is a call to rest in that. To live by faith is to rest in the permanent dwelling place of the Spirit in us. But so often, we put conditions on the Spirit. We think that we have to make him function the way that we want him to or need to, or we have to keep him around by doing the right things, And we display a squishy faith in that. But Paul calls you to something sturdy. That the presence of God is with you forever. See, Paul here understands the Spirit to be the indicator of God's covenant with you. And the one who will guarantee that you finish well. 
Well, how do we display this in a squishy way? Well, we do it when we treat the spirit like he's a dysfunctional parent sometimes. That suggests that I have to win him over or do something to ensure that he'll stick around. That when I sin, the spirit goes. And if I do something right, well, then I feel his presence. But in that, he's not acting as my seal. I have to be his. And I express no faith in God in that. Rather, I express a faith in myself. See, that's circumstantial living. It's conditional. It's not living by faith. We treat the Spirit like He is moving when we treat the Spirit like He's a party trick. See, sometimes we we want external subjectivities to validate that we are walking with God. We want the Spirit to prove it. We're the spiritual equivalent of, of Janet Jackson. What have you done for me lately? Show me yourself. I want to see it manifest in success. I want houses. I want health. I want wealth. I want tongues. But it's because of Christ that the Spirit is with you eternally. Not because of some external, subjective, squishy manifestation. Sometimes we treat the Spirit like He's a magician. I just want Him around for the immediate removal of sin. And that's it. Take care of this thing. That's all I need you for. And sometimes we treat the Spirit simply like He doesn't exist. Did you know that 60% of regular attending Christians deny the existence of the Holy Spirit? That's a shocking statistic. But I think it shows that we often reduce Christianity to an intellectualism, to a thought system. But if that's what we believe, it's no wonder that we have anxiety. We don't rely on the promised spirit. We squish him. No wonder we can't study our Bibles. We don't ask him to help us. No wonder we don't see fruit in our lives. We want to make it all on our own effort. Instead of trusting in the objective faith in the gospel that results in the spirit that will bring that subjective change. See, the spirit validates your identity with God. It reminds you of the gospel and it reveals your sin so that the gospel can be applied to that sin. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of the Holy Spirit that honors God. And that's exercised when we live by faith. That reminder, that conviction of sin, that's the rhythm and music of the spiritual kingdom of God. When we have that reminder, when we have that conviction, who could ask for anything more? The spirit circulates conviction under the unchanging law. It doesn't allow it to be changed. And it combines it with our faith in the unfading cross. Constantly bringing the cross to our mind as it speaks into our ongoing sanctification. And it's the assurance that we have to live by faith because of what God has done. It wasn't until Luther embraced these objective and sturdy truths that reform came in living by faith. 
Church, won't you cling to Christ this morning? Trust his work and live by faith. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the faith that you give to us. Thank you for the spirit which affirms our faith. Would you cause us to believe in you more, to trust you more, reveal these pockets of sin where we try to manipulate the law, where we try to shrink the cross. Give us the confidence of your salvation and your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.